ideas on institutions and their alternatives. I'm Lister Sinclair. Hospitality is an ancient art. In the Odyssey, we can read of the reception of Odysseus on his return to his native Ithaca. The goddess Athena has disguised him. I shall transform you, she says. The clear skin of your arms and legs shriveled, your chestnut hair all gone, your body dressed in sacking that a man would gag to see, and the two eyes that were so brilliant, dirtied, contemptible you shall seem. Thus changed, Odysseus approaches the hut of Eumaeus, his old forester and swineherd. Eumaeus immediately leads him in and makes a couch for him of the skins with which he normally makes his own bed. Odysseus praises this astonishing courtesy to a man of ragged and even repellent appearance. Friend, his old servant replies, rudeness to a stranger is not decency, poor though he may be, poorer than you. All wanderers and beggars come from Zeus. This story indicates something of what hospitality meant among the ancient Greeks. Many other peoples have comparable traditions. Monks and the Benedictine tradition recognized Christ in the guest who appears at the Abbey door. But gradually in the Christian West, spontaneous and personal practice of hospitality yielded to a set of institutions specially designed for that purpose. Historian Ivan Illich points to the hostels for the homeless and the destitute, organized by Christian bishops in the middle of the third century, as the first institutions created to offer hospitality in the name of the whole community and to begin the uprooting of hospitality from the household. Many centuries later, in Jerusalem in 1195, the Knights Hospitaller founded the first hospital. Like each new institution that followed, it began as a heroic expansion of the scope of Christian charity, but led eventually to a world unprecedented outside the modern West, a world with an institution for every need. This has left contemporary societies in a curious and paradoxical position, rich in institutions, but poor in the virtues they supposedly embody. Hospitality is one of those virtues, and this episode of Ideas tells of an attempt to discover and foster its practice in a suburb of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. It comprises the second hour of a six-part series called Beyond Institutions by David Cayley. In 1988, Samuel and Pearl Oliner published The Altruistic Personality, a book about the many non-Jewish Europeans who sheltered Jews from the Holocaust. Of the 600 people they studied, nearly 70% said that they did it because they were asked. And in most cases, it was not the threatened person who asked, but an intermediary. This program is about the power of asking and about an effort to harness this power to rescue persons with disabilities from lives of loneliness and isolation. It was inspired by a book by David Schwartz called Crossing the River, Creating a Conceptual Revolution in Community and Disability. The book tries to understand why a complex of institutions, programs, and systems constitute our nearly reflexive response to every predicament, 
and to propose a new model of social action in which unmanaged relationships would take the central place now held by institutions, and care would be sought not just from systems, but from those citizens with the inclination and capacity to freely offer it. The author is the director of the Developmental Disabilities Planning Council of Pennsylvania, a position he has held for 10 years. And the book sums up his experiences during that period in trying to create real connections between persons with disabilities and the communities in which they live. You'll hear from David Schwartz later in this hour, but first I'd like to introduce you to one of his collaborators, a woman by the name of Sharon Gretz, who lives in a rural area just outside of Pittsburgh. Schwartz's book, in fact, begins with her story, in her words, of how she came to put community at the center of her work, and how she came by the courage and determination to start making community connections, by asking. At the time, she was working for a large agency called United Cerebral Palsy. But when I called on her at her home, on a beautiful summer morning in 1993, and asked her to tell me her story, she began farther back. I grew up in a family, a very close family, um, where one person was labeled, and that was my brother. He was labeled as having autism. And we used to drive the two hours into Pittsburgh, which is the big city, uh, to go to a, a hospital here, a children's hospital, where he would see doctors and that kind of thing. And on one occasion on our way home, I remembered my mother crying. And the conversation had been about what the doctor had said, which amounted to, your son will never be a son to you. You should put him in an institution. You should just send him away now because his whole life will only bring you heartache. And it was a really scary thing for me, um, being a five-year-old girl, to realize that perhaps somebody could send your brother away. And what did that mean about me? If I was bad, did, did that mean that I would get sent away? However, my family chose not to listen to that doctor. And, and this was a big famous doctor, actually. And my mother said, we'll never go back. And we didn't. We never went back. And my brother grew up with me um, in our small town of Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, in a community where people knew his name. And to see the rest of our family and my parents' friends and eventually my friends as I was a teenager growing up who were able to accept him, I mean, he's different. He is different. He's always going to be different. He acts weird sometimes. Um, but he has all these other really neat traits about him, like he, he's never learned how to lie. So when you ask him a question, you know you'll get his really, you know, honest response to that. Um, he just, there's these little social nuances he never learned that are kind of refreshing. So there's, you know, it was okay that he was different, you know, in, in, within my circle of friends. And when I think back, I think of him at different points in his life. Like I remember when he was in high school, my mother insisted he be mainstreamed into regular classes at a time there wasn't really a thing called inclusive education. She just insisted. And there was this uh, high school cross-country coach who was a friend of my brother's psychiatrist. And the psychiatrist was a, a really wonderful man. And he said to, to my mother, I think Brian needs to get rid of some of his energy because he's so anxious all the time. And I wonder if like maybe running or something might, might help him. And you know, I know the coach at the high school John Smith, I'll talk to him. And he did, and Coach Smith um, welcomed my brother onto the cross-country team. 
and took him under his wing and helped the other boys on that, that team take Brian under their wing. And he was on that team for two or three years, and Coach Smith told them it was their job to make sure people didn't tease Brian at school. And if they did, then they better stick up for him because he's their, he's their teammate. And those boys became his friends. Years later, the meaning of her brother's story would come back to Sharon Gretz when she herself began to seek points of entry into the everyday world for people who had been excluded. But first, she took a job with a large agency called United Cerebral Palsy in Pittsburgh. And in this position, she feels in retrospect, she put so strong an emphasis on the rights of people with disabilities that she became somewhat suspicious of the community. It was a big civil rights thing for me, but it was all kind of this, I felt like a lot of times like demanding. I felt myself an ally of people with disabilities, but it was always this like, you know, people, the, the community out there is bad, people are, you know, going to try to take rights away from people or aren't giving them their rights, and so that was my whole focus. And I guess I came to believe that the community was a hostile place for people. This attitude began to change when Sharon Gretz became involved in an effort to move eight of United Cerebral Palsy's clients, all with relatively severe disabilities, out of nursing homes and into their own apartments. This program was an innovation for the agency, and in 1985, when it happened, for the state of Pennsylvania as well. It involved a creative patchwork of funding and was viewed very skeptically by those who had previously cared for the people who were moving. The staff in, at the nursing home would actually were taking bets about when they'd be back. I mean, people were putting money in, saying, okay, well, I think David will be back in a month. I think Mary Lee might be back in, oh, we'll give her three months. And seriously, taking bets on when they'd be back. They really believed that they were the only people who could provide uh, care to a person, if you want to call that care, or, you know, physical assistance. They believed that people were too severely disabled to ever, how could this person live in their own apartment? I mean, come on, let's be serious. My one friend, Mary Lee, used to challenge the staff at the nursing home quite a bit because she really insisted that she every day be dressed nicely and have makeup. And so they, a lot of them didn't like her. And they just said, you know, gee, you're, you know, you cause so much trouble around here. Just imagine what it's going to be like in an apartment. You're going to have only a few people to depend on instead of all of us. It was scary for them, you know, to leave. And they became very proud of themselves uh, after some time had passed that they, they realized that they weren't going back. The eight people who made this transition had spent, between them, 145 years in institutions. They were now living, nominally, in the community. But as Sharon Gretz began to realize, that did not mean that they knew the community or that the community knew them. Somebody said to me this phrase that, that kind of had a big impact on me, and, and that was, I'd like to feel needed sometime. You know, everybody's always giving, giving me. I get, you know, aides that come in and help me, and I get help cooking dinner, and people take me to the store. I'd like to give back. And that kind of sat with me for a while, you know, and then I had the opportunity to meet some folks who kind of further ch kind of challenged me a little bit. There were some folks from Syracuse University who came to study this program because they had heard about it. And at the same time, I met David Schwartz from the Developmental Disabilities Planning Council. And both of those uh, sources introduced me to uh, John McKnight's work. 
and I, I remember the first article I read of McKnight's was called, I think, Professionalized Service Disabling Help. It you know, really spoke about how sometimes through this idea of paid service, we actually do more harm than good. And I had never, ever thought about that before. It, it never occurred to me that possibly in these structures of helping that I had been a part of really building at this agency that, that there might have been some you know, remnant of like hurting people in some way. So that really provoked me a lot. That I remember feeling really stunned by it. I wasn't angry. I was very curious. And I began to think more about, and people were challenging me to think about, well, these people who moved from the institution, what was their life really like? And Steve Taylor from Syracuse said to me, who, you know, who is in their life that isn't paid to be there? And I started, you know, trying to think of each person. Who, you know, who was it? Who was it? And I realized there was nobody. That we had helped people move and live in a normal community that any, you know, any person might like to live in this apartment or, you know, a typical town. There was no visible walls. It wasn't an institution. People went to the grocery store. People, you know, ate in restaurants. People went to movies had no one in their life who wasn't paid to be there. And that just shocked me. I was just, it was like uh, being struck with lightning. But it wasn't a bad thing. And I don't know why I didn't see it as a bad thing, you know, because I, ha I had put a lot of time into creating this whole thing. But it excited me to see something in a different way. Sharon Gretz began to consider how she could connect her clients with the world around them. The place that they were living was a town just east of Pittsburgh, called Wilmerding. The Westinghouse Company had begun there a century before, but in the 1980s, the town was suffering the same difficulties as many older industrial areas in the U.S. Gretz knew that she had to find someone in the town who was well-connected, so she began to make inquiries. I started asking everybody I knew, did they know anybody from Wilmerding? Do you know anybody? Do you know anybody? And after a short time, this fellow called me, and he said, you know, I was thinking about your question about do you know anybody, and I realized that my aunt has lived there a long time. So I called my aunt, and my aunt said, you know, if you're looking for somebody like that, who's, you know, well-connected and, you know, lived there all their life kind of thing, you need to talk to, you know, this woman, Jerry. Okay. And uh, so it happens she's the mayor, and she's also this beautician. And, he, and she said, that's who you should call. Here's her phone number. So I wrote it down and at this point still spent a lot of time at my desk, you know, that I'd worked real hard to have, you know, this little office and desk and on bulletin board. And on the bulletin board, I put Jerry's phone number. And I kind of, you know, I, I know other people have felt this kind of uh, experience. I wondered how I could possibly call this person I didn't know. What would I say? I really didn't want to come off like this professional, you know, M-E-D, after my name kind of person. I, I guess I lack some trust in could I come off any other way? I mean, you know, hadn't I been preparing my whole life to be that person? And now what I'm saying is maybe either I need to go back to being Sharon, you know? I mean, I was so confused. It was really confusing. And I, I, I literally looked at that phone number for weeks. And I would go through it in my mind. Okay, she'll pick up the phone and she'll say, hello, this is Mayor Hometz, and I'll say, well, hello, my name's Sharon. You don't know me, but I know you. You know, I mean, I'll go through this whole scenario. Um, okay, well, let's try it a little differently, and then I, the next day go through the, this other scenario, and it finally got to the point where I literally, it was like, take 
one hand around the wrist and force myself to pick up the phone, dial it real quick, and just like pray, like how, you know, and just that I would have the guts to, this is the, you know, the very first time, the very first ask, if you will, and there was so much anxiety about that, and I, I don't even know what I said. I really, I can't even remember what I said. I, I just asked her if I could talk with her, that I knew some people in her community, and I wanted her to know about them. And so we, we decided we'd meet. And uh, then the whole scenario started again. Okay, what will I say when I get there? And uh, when I got to her office, it was, you know, she was mayor that day, so um, it was, we met in the mayor's office, and I don't know, she was just this really nice lady. I had built this monster, not, I didn't think she'd be mean, you know, I didn't create this monster that kind of way, but I guess I just pictured this flat face sitting behind this desk, like, you know, just looking at me, and, and instead there was this warm person who, you know, immediately came over and embraced my hand, and, oh, how lovely for you to come to our town, what do you think, isn't this nice? And then it became very easy just to start talking to her. I know these people who, you know, live in, in you know, this apartment complex, Versailles Castle, and they don't have anybody in their life who isn't paid to be a part of it. You know, these are people who have lived in your community for two years and they really don't know anybody. And the thing that struck me about her, as well as other people I went on to talk with, was she started to tell me a story about a woman with a disability that had grown up in her neighborhood who had cerebral palsy. And when this woman's mother died some years later, quite a few years later, the woman was sent to a nursing home. And it ended up that the woman would call Jerry almost every day and say, I want to come home. I want to come home. She hated the nursing home. And Jerry, having been a lifelong friend of her mother's, couldn't ignore that. So she started finding a way for, her name's Marion, to come home. And she found her an apartment in town, and she went uh, through the building and asked the people there to welcome Marion. And uh, Marion came back. And she's still, you know, she's a very active member of the community now because Jerry did that. So what I was coming to her with wasn't this strange thing at all. She really knew what I was talking about. The language that she used wasn't the politically correct language that we know in our, dis, you know, this disability field, if you will, you know, about persons with disabilities and people first kind of language. She, you know, she didn't know that, but it just didn't matter because she really showed her heart to me that day and, and in many days to follow and introduced me to many of her friends and, and went about the business of getting to know people and getting them involved in her community. Tell me some of the things that happened from then on? Well, Jerry introduced me to another very active community member. His name's Fran, a um, wonderful gentleman. And the two of them then began to spend time with people to see what their interests were, to kind of figure out who they were as people. And the very first kind of connection that happened, actually Fran uh, initiated. And, and he had gotten to know this man, Arthur. And Arthur, I guess at the time, was about 59 or 60, and had lived about 40 years in the nursing home. A very warm, upfront kind of guy. He was also a very large man, and, and he filled his wheelchair completely. And, and he, he was kind of eccentric, you know. He wore suspenders, and his pants were way too big, and, and this straw hat. And 
so Fran got to know Arthur, and Arthur was not very clearly able to say to Fran, I'd like to do this, or I'd like to be a part of this kind of group. I mean, he, all he said is, figure I better do something nice. So Fran called me one day, all excited, because he said, I, I, you know, I think I have it. A really good place for Arthur would be at the food pantry. And, and Fran had actually started the food pantry several years earlier, earlier as a way of helping to feed the people of his community who didn't have any money, you know, to buy food. And I'll never forget when he told me what they had planned for Arthur to do. And, and that was that Arthur would be the person who greeted everybody. He would be the first person who people came to when they entered the food pantry. He would greet them and then he would give them their number because, you know, there's so many people came in at one time and, you know, just to keep things running smoothly, they decided on this number system. And I sat there and I looked at Fran and I thought, oh my God, they don't get it. They don't get this. Arthur, um, first of all, stutters and spits. So I can just see this. People are going to come in and he's going to stutter and spit at them and, and that'll be over. You know, and furthermore, he doesn't know his numbers. Don't they see, you know, I mean, I had envisioned they'd put him in the kitchen, you know, maybe packing food where, you know, I mean, he was, you know, he could do things with his hands, but he couldn't think real well. And this was still, um, at that time, I, you know, as much as I could see Arthur's gifts, his, the things he lacked also were very prominent to me still. Fran didn't see any of that, although Arthur had been with him and, but he didn't see it. So I, I had this real dilemma at the time about, okay, what do I do? Um, in my mind, I was like setting up this quote, failure. Is I didn't believe Arthur had the capacities to do the job and, and Fran believed that he did. And I had been telling Fran, you know, you're the expert. I'm gonna, you know, I mean, you know, you know your community, you know the people, you've gotten to know Arthur, you're the, you know, I'm not the expert, you are. So what happens then when I disagree with him, you know? And so I decided in this case to just shut up, you know? We'll just see what happens. And, and Arthur became a very important part of that food pantry network. And in fact, he, you know, greeted people for several years, you know, every Wednesday afternoon. He'd be the first person that people saw. He wasn't fixed. They didn't fix him at all, I mean, but he was appreciated um, for who he was he would fall asleep and people would go by without getting their numbers. Or some people just didn't want to deal with him. And, and it, the thing that impressed me was how the people at the food pantry just figured things out. They just, they never ever said Arthur's not good enough or his needs are too great or his, I remember one time Fran called me and said that Arthur was um, wetting himself. He wasn't making it to the bathroom in time. And I was sure that that was the end. And so I, I suggested to Fran that maybe that wasn't the right place for Arthur. Because I, I, I kind of thought maybe he was going to tell me that. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll say it first. You know, let's get this out in the open. And Fran got really mad at me. And he said, you know, I wasn't calling you to get rid of What do you mean he doesn't belong here? I mean, he belongs here. I mean, I'm just calling to see if there's anything that we can do to help. I mean, does he have a physical problem? Or, you know, what should we do? That's all I this was such an important lesson for me. Um, and it seems kind of small. I mean, Arthur's life still continued. I mean, he lived in a supported living apartment, you know, surrounded by paid people. But kind of s slowly he became known. And he certainly had a place 
that went beyond all that, where people really saw him as quite unique and gifted. And many things about what I guess the, that people would see as deficient about him were actually the gift, if you will. Things that, that I had called institutional behavior, uh, like he stuffed his pants with all of his possessions. That's why he wore them so big, because in the institution people took his things. And, and so he had learned to keep his most personal things close to his body. And um, I remember sitting at the food pantry with the folks there one day, and, and uh, somehow this came up about Arthur putting things in his pants. And I asked them what that meant to them. Because I thought, okay, here's the institutional behavior. We had tried 10 years, right, to, uh, to not get him to put things in his pants, you know. And they said to me, well, what they had noticed was that he put his badge from the pantry in his pants. And actually what he did is he wrapped it in handkerchiefs and kerchiefs and paper bags. And then he'd put it in his pants or pull it out and then unwrap it. And what they told me is that meant that uh, that was like one way they knew how important his work was to him, that this place had become that important to him because he only kept things in his pants that were really important to him. Okay, I mean, they didn't see anything at all wrong with that. You know, that was a source of pride for them, actually, you know. So my whole uh, way of thinking was just exploding because things that I had seen as problems weren't problems. Things that had these labels that, you know, needed behavior plans to back them up in this kind of human service world. Um, in the community were, I mean, people were very creative in how they interpreted those things. And it was all based on their relationship with him, that they knew what that meant when he wrapped that prize badge, you know. And that only came from spending time with him. Sharon Gretz went on to make community connections for many of the other people whom she had helped to get out of the nursing home. Asking never really got much easier, she says, but the results justified the effort. And if she had not asked, she believes, the people whom she knew would never have become known to their communities. There were many people in the community who were prepared to welcome someone who, who might have been seen as different. The trick was finding those people and, and then asking them. And, and I really don't think that unless there was somebody out there finding them and asking them that the people I knew and cared about, I'm not sure they would have ever become a part of the life of their town. By all accounts, in, in their own account, their life from the time they had left the institution had improved greatly. But when people became a part of a group where they felt like they belonged, it added so much more to their life, even though they still, for the most part, I think we could say were surrounded by service. Having those opportunities where they were not a client, where um, it was just them based on their interests and gifts, involved with other people who had those same interests and who appreciated who they were, it just sparked so much life in people uh, that it was... I became convinced that this was a very important thing that needed to happen for, for not only those people, but for many people who, who had been sent away, who had been labeled.
The community building work of Sharon Gretz, as I said earlier, is one of a variety of initiatives undertaken with the support of Pennsylvania's Developmental Disabilities Planning Council under the direction of David Schwartz. The approach it embodies is perennial, but can be traced in the present generation to a handful of influential critics and teachers. One whom Sharon Gretz has already mentioned is John McKnight. Another is Wolf Wolfensberger, now of Syracuse University, and a man who has had a huge influence in the field of human services. In 1966, Wolfensberger first proposed something that he called citizen advocacy. He suggested that one way to secure the interests of people with disabilities would be to overcome their segregation by connecting them with citizens outside the service system and therefore uncompromised by it. He believed that creating voluntary, or he also says natural relationships, would provide more safety and sustenance to extremely vulnerable people than exclusive dependence on paid helpers. His idea became the seed of what today is a North America-wide network of citizen advocacy offices. David Schwartz had already been very much influenced by Wolfensberger's ideas when he became the director of the Developmental Disabilities Planning Council in 1983. He had studied with Wolfensberger in Syracuse, and he recognized citizen advocacy as, he says, the most highly evolved, consciously conducted form of asking. Schwartz had also seen at first hand how the movement to establish group homes and other so-called community services had failed to overcome the segregation suffered by people with disabilities. So he tried to convince his colleagues on the council to adopt a new approach. One of the things that I and a few other people within the group were particularly interested in was doing some experiments to see if you asked ordinary citizens to become in law, involved in the lives of people with disabilities, whether they would do it. So we started on a, a very small scale, funding a few little demonstration projects along this line. I must say, in the face of a considerable amount of skepticism, but what happened was amazing stories started coming out of these projects where people were asking others to be involved. And these stories started really having a big gut emotional effect on people because we could see that one person's life had been changed and then another person's life and then another person's life. Not a thousand, just one, just one, just one. So we'd experiment with a few more and we'd get another positive result. And then we'd put out some big grants to big system change projects with professional organizations, and we would be very disappointed in the amount of actual change that occurred. So over the years, what's happened is that I think as a group, this large group of the board and its committees and the probably 50 people who are involved in this have become steadily more persuaded that this actually is something which really does help people and uh, does so on a basis where you don't have to spend a whole lot of money to really bring about some results. One of the important premises of the work in which David Schwartz has been involved is that relationships are what finally matter. 
this reverses the common assumption that only systems can reliably produce the expert care required by people with severe disabilities. Systems, Schwartz and his colleagues are saying, obey economic laws. Care is always personal. And personal relationships, chancy as they are, are all that we can ultimately rely on. Any person that we are able to get into a relationship will be to some degree protected. There is no protection greater in the world than having a friend. And it is not dependent upon money, government or otherwise. Once the asker is able to ask someone, will you be involved in this person's life? And then they do it and you back away. It may not be forever. It may fall apart. Relationships are fragile. But nonetheless, the most significant thing for that person that one could do has been done. And even if I got fired tomorrow and the whole organization disappeared and all the funding disappeared, that friendship is not necessarily going to disappear. David Schwartz has been reflecting for a long time on the question of how to end the isolation of people with disabilities. And he has asked himself why, if communities are assumed by definition to be hospitable places, should a special class of askers be necessary to galvanize this virtue? The answer came to him in a meeting he had arranged in order to bring a number of his colleagues together with Ivan Illich, someone whose thinking Schwartz had found stimulating and challenging. The discussion was about the gospel story of the Good Samaritan, a parable about a man who has been robbed and beaten and left half dead in a ditch beside the road. Two men of his own nation, both of high religious standing, come along the road but pass by on the other side. Then comes a Samaritan, a man of another nation, a Palestinian, we'd say in contemporary terms, and he helps the wounded man. In our conversations, we tried to transpose this to the modern situation. The Samaritan walks down the road. The man is lying in the ditch. And at that moment, something different occurs. This asker walks up to him and says, would you be willing to take that man and take care of him? Now, if you inject that into the original it's a very jarring note. It, it, it just doesn't sound right. It sounds foreign. It sounds wrong. What would that asker be doing there? Why would you put an asker on that road? There didn't need to be one. And what we concluded from our conversations that weekend was that the reason that you have an asker now is because it's not the same road that the Samaritan walked down. It's not the same road because the face of the man lying in the ditch is obscured. What I would picture concretely is this. The road we now, the Samaritan, the potential Samaritan now walks down is a road that is bounded on all sides by institutions. There are windows and doors and it's all brick. And that when someone falls into a ditch or is ready to leap off a bridge or whatever is about to happen, someone comes out of one of these institutions and pulls them inside where they are to be taken care of. It might be a nursing home. It might be a hospital. It might be 
you know, a special school for people with disabilities. It might be, you know, there, our, our entire landscape is covered by hundreds of years of work to develop caring institutions, quote, unquote. So that what happens now is that the potential Samaritan walks down the road and he does not see the man lying in the ditch because the man is not lying in the ditch. The man is physically, or more importantly, in terms of ideas, in the care of those paid to take care of such people. The point of the asker now is to show the face of the person who is behind the wall of the caring institutions to the potential Samaritan. Askers, according to David Schwartz, re-engender virtues that have rusted in a society where needs always call for a professional response. Their work has been made necessary by the steady expansion of the social sphere ruled by the economic calculus of money and jobs. It's not, he says, that there's something wrong with paid relationships per se. It's just that an exclusive and one-sided emphasis on this sphere has left contemporary societies profoundly out of balance. Paid relationships are very important. If I need an appendectomy, I don't necessarily want to have a, a community healing ritual. I mean, that's really good for some other things, and maybe for appendectomy for all that I know, but I just as soon get the darn thing out, and really well by people who are paid, and I don't even mind them if they're paid well. And we know there are wonderful paid people in all sorts of work. I think that the thing that we have tended to forget is that paid relationships are not everything and that we have people who are essentially starving to death in the midst of plenty. That we have people who are surrounded by paid relationships who have not one single friend who have never had a single friend. And that if, you, if this goes on very long, people then become so adept at rejecting any approach of a friend that lest they be hurt one more time and rejected, that they never let anybody in. The question is of balance because our current situation is one in which Almost 100% of the time, in any given situation, our response to it is systemic. That's the only problem. You know, if it were 50% of the time, I'm not sure that we would have a situation that would be a bad one. I think the fact is, is that if you don't re tend to restrain systemic and essentially economic forces, they take over the whole world. And we live in a world in which that it has taken over most of the world, and so we think that's what the world is. And the urgency is simply to get back to some kind of a balance. I mean, there's a, a friend of mine who was at a, at a meeting recently for his town in which the fire chief got up and said he, he needed a larger budget for the ambulance service because they were getting more and more calls and they were just short of money to be able to run it. And one of the things he had said was that one woman in their town had in the past year called 
the ambulance service, I think, 147 times when she was having panic attacks. Now, panic attacks can be a very serious and frightening thing, but ambulances can't do anything about it. And of course, one of the first questions to ask is, why is she calling the ambulance service? And my guess would be, there isn't anybody else in her life to call. So do you continue to increase the budget of the ambulance service so that you can send the ambulance out every time someone has a problem? Or do you try to regain some kind of a balance? And the curious thing about this particular time in history is that we have so completely lost our balance. Now that's just starting to change because, of course, if you live in an absolute extreme, let's say, tilt of the teeter-totter, eventually you start noticing that things don't work, that there simply is just not enough money in the world to be able to respond to people's situations if resources are the answer to everything. And there are a lot of things that resources will not buy, such as a friend. In the first program of this series, David Schwartz told a story about a woman called Joni Davis. She had lived since infancy in a notorious institution called the Willowbrook State School for the Mentally Retarded. When a television expose made a scandal of this place in the 1970s, she was moved into a group home David Schwartz had helped to start in Ithaca. He welcomed her with the promise that this would be her home for as long as she wanted. But years later, after he was gone, he discovered that because she now required kidney dialysis, the state intended to move her back to an institution and that he was powerless to change this decision. She died friendless at that institution and David Schwartz was forced to recognize that his promise had been hollow. In the final reckoning, Joni Davis had belonged to a system which could move her at its convenience and not to a community that could actually keep her safe. This was one of a series of experiences that were decisive in making David Schwartz seek security for vulnerable people outside institutions. But would a community respond in similar circumstances? That was the question faced by Sharon Gretz when she discovered that one of the people she had helped to get out of the nursing home and into her own apartment had cancer. The woman's name was Mary Lee, and she received the diagnosis when she had just begun to establish herself in her new community. One of the things that occurred to me um, early on was, oh my God, what happens if she gets really sick? Is she going to be sent back? And uh, knowing her, I knew that could never happen. It could never happen to her because she would die. Her soul would die if she ever had to go back to that place. It would have killed her whether the cancer did or not. And it's not that I believe that people automatically would want to do that, but I just, something, I know that systems have their levels of care and how much money they'll spend, and I really worried what these funding sources who provided for her helpers were going to say about all this. Um, but I knew that the staff at UCP were committed to 
to her staying. But I, I just started to ask myself what, what could be done, you know, what could be done to ensure the best chance we can that she won't go back. Sharon Gretz decided to bring together all the people who knew and cared about Mary Lee to talk about what was to be done. The meeting was attended by family and staff from United Cerebral Palsy, but also included people from a church Mary Lee had begun to attend before she started to receive treatment for her cancer. So Sharon Gretz arranged a second meeting at this church. We talked about what people might be able to do. For instance, people spoke about how their church was not very accessible where the fellowship hall was in the basement. And they talked about how important it was for her to, you know, become more involved at church as she could and that they, you know, would have people there who would carry her chair and all, very heavy chair, down two flights of steps if need be because, I mean, there was just no way they were going to make this accessible in her lifetime. Um, we have this ladies' circle. We meet every Wednesday. We have lunch together. Why don't you come? Once a month is movie night. You know, why, why don't you come? You know, and so slowly, you know, she became more and more involved in these other aspects of church life that she had never um, been a part of before. And as it turns out, her cancer for a while seemed like, you know, okay, well, then things changed again. It had grown. The lumps were back. Worse, you know, this time. And, and again, she was so sick, she stopped going to church. And people had really just started building relationships with her, you know, and I had hoped that they just realized that they, she, they were needed to come to her now. But, you know, they didn't realize that yet. So I went back and I called this pastor, Ed, and I went into his little study at the church, explained to him what was happening to Mary Lee again. And I said, you know what? I said, I don't know how much time she has. I don't know. But I know that right now she's stuck in her home. I know there's many you know, people around her, some who love her, some who are doing a job, but all who are paid to be there. Now, she's one of yours. She's a member of your congregation, and I want to know what you people are going to do because she's at risk. She's at risk of, number one, going back to the nursing home, She's at risk of dying without ever knowing that she was loved just because of who she was, or because she was a part of something and belonged somewhere, I, you know? I said, this is becoming more and more costly. And I said, what are you going to do, you know? And, and after listening to me, he said, so what you're saying is that Mary Lee needs us to come to her, and maybe we can help support her to keep her at home. Is that what you're saying? And I said... That's what I'm saying. I don't know how. I don't know. So he decided how. He sent another letter of invitation to the members of the church and also announced it from the pulpit that Mary Lee's friends would be meeting in the parlor. So we met, and he presented the situation to them again. And he said to them, we need to go to her. And he pulls out this list of days and times, and he said, I expect everybody in this room to put their name down about when you're going over to Mary Lee's place. And that everybody can do something. Some people might want to go and talk. Other people, you know, you know Mary Lee enjoys movies. So bring some videos with you. She'd like people to write letters for her. Some of you can go and write letters. Some of you might want to cook. And this one guy 
kind of raised his hand. He was kind of slumped in a chair and raised his hand. He, I, I kind of got the impression he was a real jokester. Do you know what I mean? Like he was the funny guy all the time. And, but he was quite serious this time. He said to me, well, ma'am, wouldn't you rather just have the money? He said, you know, we're not trained like people who work for your agency are trained to help her. And even before I could respond, Pastor Ed jumped in and he said, it's not just about money. This is about her knowing she's one of us. And then this man said, well, I don't cook, you know? And I'm not good at this and I'm not good at that. And Pastor Ed looked at him, he said, no, but you're a fine bullshitter. He said, so if all you do is you go and you sit and you bullshit, that's what you give. Everybody can give what it is that they give, what is good, what they know how to do. And that's kind of how it, it worked. People started coming, and they came, you know, at scheduled times, and then some people would come at unscheduled times, and they kept coming. I remember one time being over there, and she was surrounded. They were doing a jigsaw puzzle, and some people were there you know, just friends uh, with the church. Some people were staff members who had stayed late, off shift kind of thing, and come over. And her sister was there from California. Her mother had come. And there's Mary Lee sitting in front of this big jigsaw puzzle on the table and like a queen. You know what I mean? She just presiding over court, you know? I mean, because people were just, there was all this life in her apartment. And they were very faithful. And, and the other thing I want to add is so were the people who were paid to be there. And um, the church friends and the people who were paid to be there didn't always see eye to eye on things. That was a rough part because the community people really expected things to be a certain way and didn't understand the way that the system worked. And the people who were paid helpers really felt that they had done everything they could. I mean, they had, they had really gone from a situation where they, they thought, oh my God, we can never do this to whatever it takes. And so they didn't know, with the church friends coming over, well, what should I do? And uh, a number of us were trying to help those worlds understand each other a little bit better, and it didn't go as well as it should have probably, but part of this is that you can't fix life. And so um, part of this story is that Mary Lee died. But she died at home, and I believe she died knowing she was loved. And Kind of the proof of that was, I think, at her funeral, which almost literally filled the church. And I knew that even a year previous to that, had she died, half of the church would have been filled with people who had known her through their paid service because she had developed many friendships that way. The interesting thing, though, is when she died was the half of the church that was filled with her church friends. And they came and they grieved for her. And they prepared a beautiful luncheon in her memory. And to me, that kind of told the story. I, I, they were there for her um, when she needed them. And, and I think that's the power of inviting people into each other's lives, you know? I mean, Pastor, what Pastor Ed said was, Mary Lee's life presented a gift to them you know, as painful and as tragic as the cancer situation was, it was a gift to them to find out what they were about as a congregation. She changed all of our lives. I mean, it was, it, and it's not an easy thing. It's not like this fairy tale thing where everything in the end turns out like you want. 
You know, I wish she never got cancer. You know, I wish she didn't go through all the pain. I wish that her church friends and her staff didn't fight so much. I wish that it had come 10 years earlier. But that's kind of part of what I'm learning is it's this, the, the asking and inviting that we do um, isn't separate from life itself. And, and it's though through relationships that all of our lives are enriched, whether it's through our pain or through our joy. Without the relationships, it doesn't matter anyway, see? Mary Lee helped build relationships among a lot of people. So that was her gift. On Ideas, the second of a series of six programs by David Cayley called Beyond Institutions. The series continues tomorrow night. Technical production was by Lorne Tulk, production assistance by Gail Brownell and Liz Nodge. You can get a printed transcript of tonight's program or the entire six-part series by calling Radio Works at the following toll-free number, 1-800-363-1530. That's 1-800-363-1530. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair. And stay tuned for Between the Covers, Healthy, Wealthy and Dead by Suzanne North, following the 10 o'clock news.